Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here tonight. It's encouraging to have you here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. If you would take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. We'll continue a text that we started this morning. We had a wonderful day here yesterday for our young people, and we're so thankful for young people that are involved in so many good things. Had a great number of young people uh, to be here for the day that was entitled Drive for Success. We appreciate Doug Perry and also uh, the committee that helped along with the organization of that day. It was a top-notch day. I I believe we're safe to say that our young people uh, will probably not forget the day for many, many decades, if even the rest of their life. I believe a great impact was made, and we're thankful for all the ones that had a part in that. And we're thankful that our young people had the opportunity to be a part of that. We're thankful for Mike Smits that spoke yesterday. He did a tremendous job uh, speaking to our young people yesterday. And uh, several others helped in various ways, but I want to especially mention Mike and the tremendous job that he did speaking. Let's make sure that we all find our place Uh, The Lord doesn't want us doing everything. Uh, The Lord doesn't want anyone here doing more than what's healthy for them to do. He doesn't want anyone here doing more than what's best for your family. But the Lord wants all of us doing something. Make sure that you get an SOS book. Make sure you fill it out, even if it's just one or two things, even if it's just two or three things. We're not looking for volume here of one person doing everything We're just looking for it by the Lord's plan, where every member has a part, every member has responsibility, and we all work together to glory of God. And just like when the members of our body all works together, the body functions as it should. And that's what we're striving to do here. How are we going to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ? So many hearts have been captured by Satan. How will those hearts be released and captured by God? Now, if we hadn't studied this morning's text already, we could probably say that it would be a surprise for us to say that Paul would tell us how to capture the hearts of the community of Mount Juliet. And he would say, I want you to be a little bit more like your mother. Now, that's a beautiful thought. We need to take on some characteristics of motherhood. It's not that we all become feminine or anything like that, but it is the fact that there are some things that mothers do that relates love. There are things that mothers do that has a great impact upon the lives of her children. And Paul says that he came to them, and and we're going to review these first four or five slides very quickly for the benefit of maybe someone that wasn't here this morning, but not as much time as we took this morning. But if you'll notice... As we drop back into 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter. And by the way, this ought to be somewhere around 1,048 in your pew Bibles, if you're turning in your pew Bibles, 1,048. But notice back in verse 7, he talked about the example that's being spoken by Macedonia and Achaia. And then he says in verse 9, that he declares, that they have been declaring concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And then he begins the second chapter in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, how our coming to you was not in vain. He's leading up to the fact of talking about, this is how we came to you. How did we turn the world upside down? How did we make such a difference in Thessalonica? There was a certain manner in which we came to you. And this morning we scanned the first and second verses, and we noticed that even though they came persecuted, they left Philippi being persecuted there, they were not timid. They were still bold with the gospel. Listen, we must be bold with the gospel. Now, we're going to learn later on in this lesson that doesn't mean that we're harsh. It doesn't mean that we're mean. 
It doesn't mean that we have a hatred or an evil spirit about us. That's not at all what it means to be bold in the gospel. But let's note the fact of what Paul says here. We came to you persecuted, but we came to you bold in the gospel. Then we scan the next few verses, 3 and 4. They didn't come with error, not with deception, not with false teaching, verse 3. But they had been given a tremendous task, verse 4. They were entrusted with the gospel. This brings us to the end of verse 4 and then verse 5. Notice, they didn't come to please men. First and foremost is to please God. Now, note verse 5. They also did not come with a cloak of covetousness. In other words, there's an alternative motive here. In other words, really they wanted money, but they were going to cloak it under the disguise of bringing the gospel. Friends, our motives have to be pure. If we're going to win the souls around us, our motives have to be pure. And we need to be able to say, as Paul could say, God would testify of this. Why could he say that? Because God can read hearts. God knows what Paul and Silas' motives were. And so he's saying the one that knows motives, he knows why we came into you. Friends, we must have the same concern for the lost around us. We must have that same concern to capture the hearts of those about us. But our motives need to be so pure that we can say, God is my witness. He could testify that truly I simply want to glorify him. I want to see souls taken out of the grasp of Satan. And I want to see them placed in the arms of a loving God. Now, how are we going to do that? You remember this morning, this led us to the point of verse 7 and 8 where Paul gives several facts, but then he says, now let me give you an analogy. Let me give you something that you can work from to apply this to your life and so that you can remember it. And so let's read verse 7 and 8 now because this is our text for tonight again. He says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our, also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul, how did you come to these people in Thessalonica? He says, I just came to them like a mother would. What a beautiful thought. Notice that very first point that, again, the first point this morning, except tonight we're going to look at it from the aspect of of drawing souls to the Lord. Go back to verse 7 and again where he says, but we were gentle among you. Friends, if we're ever going to reach the lost, we're going to have to learn to be gentle. We're going to have to learn to be tender. We must be kind. Now, it's interesting to me that this very same word, the same text, uh, uh, the same tense, the very same word is only used one other time in the Scriptures. Now, as if you will, be turning to 2 Timothy. As you're turning to 2 Timothy, let me remind you of the text we're leaving. In other words, Paul is saying, let me tell you how I came to you in order to convert you. He says, I came to you in the gentleness that a mother would come to you. Now, the other time that it's used... The very same setting. This time Paul is talking to Timothy about how to reach the lost. As a matter of fact, to really lay the groundwork of this, I'd like for us to drop down and read verse 26 first to see what's leading, what all this is leading up to. Look at 26. I know this is in the middle of a sentence, but I think this will help us understand what this is leading up to. We're in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snares of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, there's a group I want you to be concerned about. Who is it? It's the ones that have been taken captive. Now, what's been our series for three weeks? 
capturing the hearts of a community. Why? Because Satan has taken them captive. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, I want you to be concerned about those that Satan has taken captive. There's a way, he says here, to escape the snares of Satan. So we're going to drop back and we're going to read a few verses where Paul tells Timothy, these are some things that you as a servant of Jesus Christ can do to help individuals escape the captivity of Satan. So let's drop back now to verse 24. And look for our word gentle here, and it's going to be set in opposition to something else. And that really helps us understand how he's using it. Verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Except those people that are hard to get along with and like to argue a lot. No, that's not what it said. Be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting, see the boldness there? Humility, but it's not cowering down with the truth. It's still being bold with the truth, correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And now it's that idea of repentance, which is that turn. It's turning the world upside down, really right side up for the Lord. Why? Because in repentance... The Lord grants them the repentance that comes through truth. And now, verse 26, they escape the captivity of Satan. What a beautiful thought. And so it kind of moves us to the edge of our seat. Paul, I want to be a part of that. I want to help people escape the hold of Satan. How do I do it? And he says, servant of the Lord, verse 24. The first thing I have to remind you is, it's not an arguing business. There's no reason to quarrel. And that's said in opposition to be gentle. How are we going to reach people? Paul says, let me tell you how I reached those in Thessalonica. There was a mob setting that led up to that occasion there. But I still did it with gentleness. Timothy, let me tell you how you're going to reach the people of Ephesus. And there had also been a terrible mob and riot in Ephesus, if you remember back in Acts. And of all things, he says, I don't want you to do it quarreling, not arguing. Friends, the truth is where the power is. It's not in coming up with some kind of atmosphere and setting that says, we're going to have a debate and I'm going to win this debate. I'm going to prove that I'm right and I'm going to prove that you're wrong. Now let's start arguing. As crazy as that sounds, perhaps, there are a lot of folks that believe that that's the way you conduct a Bible study. There's a lot of folks that believe that's the way you talk to your your classmates or your co-workers or family members. In other words, the only way to convert someone is to quarrel with them. And I say to you from the Word of God tonight, You can't convert someone quarreling with them. Paul made it very clear. I didn't enter into Thessalonica to argue, but to be gentle. Timothy, don't go into Ephesus and quarrel. Be gentle. Peanuts comic strip, Lucy comes up and she tells her brother, she says, today at school I was able to convert someone to my religion. 
Now, he was somewhat surprised at that, knowing her personality. And he said, well, how did you do it? She said, it was at lunch today. And I told them everything that I believed religiously. And I asked them if they believed it. They said they didn't. I took my lunchbox and I beat them on the head until they said they believed it. Can you imagine someone that believed that that was the way to study the Bible with an individual? Can you imagine someone that says, you tell them what the truth is and you ask them, do you believe that? And they say, no, you punch them in the face and ask them again, do you believe it? If they say, no, you punch them in the face. If they say, no, you punch them in the face again. And eventually they're going to say, yes, they believe it. And you walk away and say, I've converted someone today. Ridiculous and far out, isn't it? What's the difference in people doing that verbally? There's not a lot of difference. It's the same craziness when we do that verbally. I tell you what, I'm going to tell you the truth and you don't like it. I'm going to put it in verbal words to punch you in the face. And then I'm going to ask you, now do you believe it? Why would anyone believe it just because we make our words harsh? Because we criticize and we ridicule. And in backdoor type of ways, we poke fun at their beliefs. Friends, it never has worked, ever. And it never will work. Paul says, be bold in the truth, but go to them like your mother. Be gentle. Not quarreling, but gentle. Now, you offset this as we go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Not offset it, but you just lay this down beside the, the fact that in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in verse 16, is a beautiful thought of where he tells us that this is what causes the church to grow. In the first two verses, he, he begins this paragraph that's leading to verse 16 that's causing the church to grow. And notice what he addresses, especially in verse 2. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So what's the point here? Paul is clearly saying that if we're going to have a church that's a growing church, we have to have a church of humility, of lowliness. We have to have a church where the members are gentle. And really the word here is not the same word as, as we've been studying. It's very similar. That's why we bring it up again. But this has more to do with meekness, which has much more to do with humility. And so the idea when we blend the two, humility going in in a humble fashion, but then dealing gently with the individuals as we boldly stand up for the truth. Now, how could you say this in other words? Flip your page to this same chapter, the fourth chapter, and look at verse 15 and just notice the beginning of the fourth chapter in verse 15. And we don't have this on a slide right here, but listen to this. But speaking, same, same chapter here, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who's the head, Jesus Christ. What's the Lord want us to do? Don't ever back down from the truth, but always speak it in love. Let's go back to our text. Our text again in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter in verse 7, we see not only that we must be gentle, but we also see as we see the next two words, but we were gentle among you. You remember, as we looked at this phrase, among you, we're looking at the aspect of being available. That's what mothers do so well. Mothers are available for us. It just seems like that when we have the need, they're already there. 
They're the ones that really, as we're growing up, most of us could say we could probably count on them as much, if not more, than we could anybody else in our life. They just seemed to be there when we needed them. They were among us. They weren't separated and out of touch and out of reach. They were among us. Well, now, how does that fall in to Paul's mentality as he says, when I was trying to reach the town of Thessalonica, one of the ways I reached you was being like a mother that was among you. I want to show you an example. Go with me, if you will, to John, the first chapter. John, the first chapter, this very same point was even brought up uh, by James Whitaker in our Bible class that I was in this morning. And it's a wonderful point. This morning, we likened this phrase, among you, by example, to that of elders. That's why elders have such an impact upon our life. If you think about it, if you are a faithful member of the Lord's church, I assure you that elders have had a huge impact upon your life. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about that, but they have. If you're a faithful member of the Lord's church, elders have had a tremendous impact upon your life. How does that happen? Because they live among us. Well, the elders weren't the first ones to live among us. Look in John, the first chapter. This is about Jesus coming to this earth. And notice what he does in 14. Of all the ways God could have presented himself to mankind, look how God does it in verse 14. And the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt where? Dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. What did Jesus do? Jesus came near to mankind so that man could see God better than man could ever see God previous to this. Man had a better understanding of what truth was when Jesus was living among mankind. Man had a better grasp on grace when Jesus lived among mankind. Our relationships are enriched when we live among whoever we're sharing that relationship with. And what a blessing it is to think Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Well, how did He do it? By living among Now, we're not going to take the time to develop this thought in depth, but you know enough probably that this will be easy to drive home in your own mind and heart in just a moment. Do you remember in John, the second chapter where Jesus was? Remember the first miracle? He performed this first miracle. Why? Because he was among the people. He was at a wedding feast and his mother was there also. He had a powerful impact because he lived in his community. He didn't live as a hermit. He lived out among the people. And then we come to John, the fourth chapter. Remember, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't mix. Let's just ask this question that the answer is already obvious. But let's ask the question. If a Jew was ever going to reach a Samaritan with the good news of Jesus Christ, what would they have to do? Well, someone would say someone would have to go and live among them. That's exactly right. Do you remember when he was leaving Judea? In John, the fourth chapter, and he was going up to Galilee, almost any other Jewish man would have went around Samaria. That's what Jews did. They couldn't stand to go through Samaria. They hated the people. What did Jesus do? Jesus went through Samaria. Why? Because he knew that if he was going to reach any of them, he had to live among them. That's why he stayed at the well when the others went to eat a meal. He was going to eat a spiritual meal that day. That particular meal, he was fasting. 
because he knew that the woman was there at the well and he knew that he was at least for that short period of time going to have to live among her if he was going to be able to reach her. He went from a stranger to a teacher to a prophet to the Messiah. Why? Because he spent time with her. Please get this point. We have visitors that come in and they visit with us every Sunday. If we're going to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to take you and I getting to know them, inviting them to lunch, finding out where they work, what neighborhood they live in, where their children go to school or their grandchildren, Finding individuals within the church that we can associate them with so that they can have a relationship with a faithful Christian so that they can live among Christians. The idea of becoming a Christian without the influence of other Christians is pretty much foreign. I know someone's going to say to me after service, Preacher, so you don't think a Bible could just drop down on an island somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and a person couldn't read it and become a Christian? Yes, in that scenario, I believe that could happen. But you tell me if that's going to happen in Mount Juliet. What's going to happen at Mount Juliet is that anyone that's searching for the Lord and they come in here and they find someone that befriends them, They find someone that lives among them. I'm not talking about just sets among them in a pew. I'm talking about through the week that lives their life among them, that shows interest in their interest, that feels pain in their pain, that rejoices in their gains. Then that person will probably be brought to the Lord. It's nothing new. It was exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, I came to you gentle among you as a nursing mother. We must live among. As we think about this living among, I want you to think about the aspect of a nursing mother. And we're going to skip one slide and let's go to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Let's go to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. We're thinking about the mother. You remember this morning we talked about mothers. As we think about motherhood as it relates to the spiritual matters, we think about the frequency that mothers have contact in our lives. We think about the way they nurture us. We think about the way they protect us. Remember we talked about those aspects of mothers that make themselves available? Let's look at one more aspect of that as we look at Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Now I'm going to ask you to look at this not from a negative sense in which it is written. The context here is where people should have gone ahead and been mature enough to move to the next level, but instead they're having to step down a level. Now that's the context. I want us to see something that's implied here that's very powerful for us to learn. In other words, someone comes in and they live among us. They are either thinking about becoming babes or maybe they are babes. What can we learn about this about us and what can we learn about them that we ought to do if we're going to be available to help them grow? Let's look at this. There's powerful things out of all three verses. We're in Hebrews 5, 12, 13, and 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone, I want you to notice that, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. 
For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Out of verse 12, note the fact. Babes need someone to teach them. Of course, this is from a negative sense. They should be beyond this and they still need it. But let's look at it from just what it's teaching if someone truly is a babe. Someone is a babe, they need someone. That means someone has to be available. It's that simple. We have to be available. Why? Because babes cannot feed themselves the meat. They need milk. What does that mean? It means they're unskilled in the Word. It means they need someone to help them become skilled in the Word. Why? Because the very next verse in verse 14, we find out that in order to have their senses exercised to discern good and evil... They're going to need someone to help them exercise their senses. They're going to need someone... Now listen to this. This is powerful. They're going to need someone that they trust and respect enough that can go up to them and say, I want to talk to you, and you know it's simply because I love you. You know, you haven't been coming to church. You know, it's impossible to grow spiritually. It's impossible to please God and and not attend worship. I want us to study Hebrews, the 10th chapter together. I just want to show you some things that God has to say. I want to ask you, who can say that to an individual? Can a stranger say that to an individual and accomplish anything good? Can an acquaintance, just someone that they wave at in the pew every now and then, do that and accomplish anything good? No. It's going to take someone that's been available in their life. Someone that's built that relationship. Someone that they know and someone that they trust. Someone who is like a gentle mother to them. That's lived among them. So that when they speak, they know they're speaking from the best interest of their heart. They know they love and care for them. There are so many things that are accepted out in the world that are simply wrong. And they have no way to exercise their senses to know that it's wrong unless someone teaches them beyond the milk to the meat of the Word. Who's going to do that? Friends, I want to tell you something. It needs to be all of us. We may not all be teachers, and I'm not suggesting that. But we all can build relationships with individuals where they have a firm identity with the Lord's church. They respect Christians. They see it demonstrated. And then we have a much, much greater opportunity to help people grow beyond the milk and to the meat. But let's notice this third point. Verse 7, we're back to our text. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother. Now notice this appraisal. Cherishes her own children. Skip down to the middle of verse 8. To impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you become so dear to us. Friends, how much do you 
a praise? How much do you value another soul? I don't know who it is. I promise you, I don't have someone in mind when I say this. But I can assure you that it would be a very, very odd Sunday if we didn't have someone here this morning that they were looking for the Lord. They probably visited the church for the first time in a lot of years. How much does that concern you? Do you look at that and say, what an opportunity. We have a soul that's looking for God that's come inside our doors. What can we do to support them? What can we do to make ourselves available to them? What can we do to encourage them? What can we do to take the milk of the Word and and feed them along until we can get them to the meat of the Word? What can we do? The Lord said, well, what if a, a person gained the whole world and lost his own soul? What does he really gain? Or what could a man give in exchange for his soul? You sell your soul. You don't have anything more valuable to exchange back for your soul. What was Jesus trying to say? Jesus was trying to say, look how valuable a soul is. Friends, skip to the end of the second chapter. This is rich, what we're about to study here. Look at the end of the second chapter. Let's look at verse 19 and 20. And notice how valuable the souls in Thessalonica were to Paul. And we've got to wrap this up. Look at 19 and 20. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ as His coming? You are our glory and joy. Someone says to you, what do you hope for more than anything? Paul would say, I hope to see those Christians that that I've helped convert. I hope to see them faithful in the day of judgment. Paul, what is your joy? Oh, what brings me great joy is to see Christians, young Christians growing and maturing like those in Thessalonica. What's your crown? What is it that you say, when I accomplish that, I've accomplished my purpose for living. It's like a reward. It's a crown. It's a victory. Now I can go to bed at night and say, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish today. And he would say to those of Thessalonica, you're my crown. When I see you ready to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, you're my crown. You bring me hope. You bring me joy. You bring me satisfaction for living. Let's never lose sight of the value of our soul, but let's never lose sight of the value of everyone's soul. What a beautiful reason to live. We're just going to mention this last one and we've got to close. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7 and be reminded that he said, just as a nursing mother, and then in verse 8, but he says that not only they parted the gospel, but also our own lives for you. We talked this morning about that meaning commitment. We have to be committed In Romans, the first chapter, Paul talked about his commitment to spreading the gospel. And he says that I am a debtor. And he says as much as in me is. In other words, he's saying, I'm so committed that I feel like I have to do it. And then he also said, and all of the energy that I can muster, all the desire I can have, the very depths of my heart is, I just want to see somebody else come to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, he said that he'd become all things to all people. He wasn't sacrificing his morality, his Christianity, his faith. He's not talking about that. He's saying anything that would hinder someone from hearing the gospel. He says, I become all things to all men that I may win some. Friends, tonight, I think 
that the congregation of Mount Juliet does a good job of reaching out to visitors and reaching out to the lost in our community and, and even abroad. But also know that it only happens if we do it again today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Please get this. Caring for souls is not a program. It's not something that just happens. It's in the heart of Christians. When they have a mother-like quality that says, I genuinely want to encourage someone else. As we sing this song of encouragement, I want to encourage you first and foremost to be concerned for your own soul. What a foolish thing it would be for us to think tonight about our concern for others and we ourselves be lost. But then I also want you tonight to think about what is it that you can do to befriend someone, to be available for someone, and in so doing, Just take advantages of the opportunities when they arise to encourage them to look upward. We're not talking about ranting and raving. We're talking about gentle, loving instruction. Invitations. Encouragement. If you've never been baptized into Christ, won't you do that tonight as a believer willing to repent of sins and confess before men? If you have been baptized into Christ, but yet... You've fallen away from what you ought to be. Won't you come back tonight? God is that Father that has His arms open. And you have a congregation, I assure you, that will surround you as a loving mother. That it would thrill us beyond words of a description to encourage someone tonight. If we can help.